Welcome back, listeners, to Radio Free South Bronx. I'm here in Park Chester with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, candidate for New York 14 Congressional District here yeah. in the Bronx and parts of Queens. Um, so welcome, Alexandria. We're so happy to have you on the show. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Now, this is a really great conversation to have because you are also a native Bronxite, and so mm-hmm. am I. Yeah. So I'm really excited to see one of our own running for office. Yeah, definitely. We've got to boost our fellow travelers, right? So tell me, tell me what is it like, what was it like growing up in the Bronx? Well, I mean, it, uh, my story is... You know, in a lot of ways, a a normal Bronx story. Um, My mom was born in Puerto Rico. My dad was born and raised in the South Bronx. And so my dad was born and he grew up in a time when the Bronx was burning. And so my family has this like multi-generational understanding of where our community has been and where it is going and how it has grown. Um, But also being, you know, having like a really strong experience that's tethered in the island and in Puerto Rico and spending a lot of my time up there as a child. It was just really interesting to have both of those perspectives. My dad was 29 when he had me, but he had me the same year that he started a small business here uh, in the Bronx. And so you can only imagine like how crazy that must have been. <laughs> like who does that Basically even? two babies. Exactly. <laughs> like decided to have two wildly different babies <laughs> in the same year. Um, everything's good. Thank you. And so we grew, so I grew up kind of around my whole family. When I think about it, you know, people talk about like they value like entrepreneurs and stuff like that. And we have this idea of what an entrepreneur was, but when I think about it, I grew up with two parents that didn't work for anybody. My mom cleaned houses and my dad kind of like was struggling to put together this little small business for our family. And that's kind of what I grew up around. So I grew up around um, going to people's homes and, you know, running the vacuum with my mom and um, also kind of being in this very diner with my dad growing up too. And seeing, you know, just being around those kinds of efforts. My family, a lot of my family is from Hunts Point, like Longwood, um, Southern Boulevard area. So I grew up a lot around there and school shopping at a cookies and, you know, (laughs) and when you grow up, like, you think you're cool, you go to Rainbow, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. So I was saying earlier that we live parallel lives. So yeah. I was born and raised in the South Bronx, uh, on 161 in Grand Concourse, but mm-hmm. now I live on Fox Street, corner of Avenue St. John. Wow. So I'm right near that Southern Boulevard area. And honestly, it really does feel like you're in a in an independent Caribbean nation mm-hmm. of Southern Boulevard. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. There's dominoes being played at every corner. There's bodegas yeah. selling items that you can't normally get yeah. in other stores that that um, are desired by people wanting stuff from back home, certain mm-hmm. medicines and stuff. There's people sitting out on the soup, talking and hanging out. And it just, you know, it's just buzzing with life. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the way I see the Bronx, mm-hmm. buzzing with life and community. And even if we are, you know, in that area, the poorest congressional district in the nation, even if we have nothing financially, um, we still have family. Yeah, and I think there's a lot to be said about that as well, in that that community, in a way, is like a huge value and 
you also think about like what community provides as well because when you look at income like how much of people's income goes to something like childcare, for example mm-hmm. and when you have a really strong community those costs are kind of covered like people, watches exactly the baby or your neighbor watches the kids and that's the new york that has traditionally existed and it's a new york that's under assault you know the a community-based new york where you know your neighbors where you know and hunt's point is, is still very much that i walk around with my niece and my niece is this huge ham like she's got this big beautiful curly hair and she's a total clown and super charismatic and she's 10 years old and um and she walks down the street and people you know, I was walking down the street with her uh, a couple months ago, and like literally, people walk, come out of the barber shops to say hello to her because she's like a little local celeb, you know. And but that's that is the value of community, like it really, really is. And when we talk about like some of the issues that big money has, you know, when we start throwing up these luxury developments in communities that have never had them before. And tearing down our small businesses that hold, mm-hmm. it's not just a barber shop. It's not just a hairdresser or a nail salon or a bodega. It really is a family of entrepreneurs. Like you were saying, your father yeah. may have been the one opening the business, yep. but your whole family was involved mm-hmm. and you grew up in it. And when developers come in and displace these businesses, they oftentimes don't come back. And what people need to realize too is that this is not, you know, in a way, I um. I kind of avoid, not that I avoid, but I don't use the word gentrification as much on the campaign trail as I talk about displacement and as I talk about getting priced out. Because I think that one of the issues with the word gentrification is that people automatically think of it through a racial lens. And it's so much more than that. And that's what developers with money want you to do. Yeah, exactly. They want to split us along racial division. But and then so meanwhile, when I move back to the South Bronx with my white fiance, is that gentrification? No, it's not, because I'm moving back home to where I was where I was born and raised and where I'm gonna start a family and raise them. Yeah, yeah. And and I think that that's you know, there are of course those dimensions to it, but you know, I talk to a lot of people who, um, for example, are, are moving into these communities and they you know there's some people that feel kind of guilty about it and they feel bad about it but the for me you know what I tell them is like you don't you know it obviously it's an issue that's like so fraught and has so many different dimensions but what people need to realize is that like you know white folk have gotten gentrified out of the upper west side and they've gotten gentrified out of Manhattan like and that's why I don't use the word gentrification because it's it's a it's a part of a broader picture of displacement and then it just becomes this rippling effect where you know it starts at the very very top levels but about half of the luxury apartments in the city or in Manhattan are empty and we now just had this other report where 275,000 apartments in the city are vacant, and that's three times the amount of, of people who are experiencing homelessness in the city. And yep. it's all being used instead of functional housing so that people have a place to live. It's being used as a method of dodging taxes and hiding wealth. 
and that has very real and rippling impacts. I mean, I go to Union Square in like a super high traffic area and all of the classic small businesses, family businesses have shut down there. And so like, you know, one of the questions I ask on my campaign is who is New York changing for? Because it certainly doesn't seem like it's changing for working families of any of any type. Yeah, absolutely. And let's talk about the role of big money in campaigns mm-hmm. um, here in New York City. You know, um, we've seen that it increasingly feels like our elected officials don't represent us, mm-hmm. but they represent the interests that lobby them. Yeah, and you can really see that. And we think of, I don't know why sometimes people think of money in politics as a Republican thing, because it is a system thing. It's a systemic thing, and, you know, next time you see a public official, next time you go to a town hall, next time you, you see someone trying to ask for your vote, you got to ask where they're getting their money from. You know, you got to ask if they're taking money from these luxury developers. And you don't even have to ask. There's websites like Ballotpedia. Yeah, totally. Um, there's but, a couple great websites that really just show you where, because they're required to federally report it. Yeah. And you can see where all their money is coming from, and then you can hold that against their votes and make your own decision. Yeah. Is this person voting for me, the constituent that voted for them? You know, we talk about, like, like for example, with this new city council, one of the first rules that was instituted this year was a rule that basically took away a local city council member's ability to veto a luxury development in their own district. So now our individual kind of advocates are powerless. Yes. And that vote has happened because luxury developers and their lobbyists for that industry are now kind of essentially purchased our our local officials. And then in the same breath, they give us participatory budgeting, which is so great that they're asking for our opinion, but they're giving us $100,000 to spend on computers and maybe a few new basketballs for the local school. Like, that's important, and that's great. But then at the same time, like you said, we have elected officials that aren't even able to stop things that impact our daily lives, like a new luxury high-rise in our community. Or, in the South Bronx, a new jail um, when they close Rikers. Mm -hmm. You know, you're not closing Rikers if you're putting a new jail in a poor community. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, the question is not just should Rikers exist. The deeper question is should we be incarcerating that amount of people to begin with? And if we're going to close Rikers just to maintain the same or similar levels of incarceration, um, especially in a jail, like Rikers is supposed to be a jail. It's supposed to be a temporary facility for people who have, who, you know, are a risk in some way or another that need to be temporarily held before trial. But meanwhile, they're being held six to nine months at least. Two years yeah, sometimes. Two years. And then it, and then they're for tiny things. You know, you look at what happened to um, Khalif Browder. Yep. And he was, say. he was accused, accused of stealing a backpack. And he was kept in Rikers for two years, never found guilty of a crime, kept in solitary confinement as a che- teenager when adolescents are, are growing, you know, the adolescent mind is growing and is very sensitive to those kinds of environmental forces. And, you know, we, we throw, you know, it's, it's, 
we throw people in Rikers because they can't afford bail for jumping a turnstile. a turnstile, you know? And, you know, all of this comes down to agency, right? Who makes the rules? Uh, who enforces the rules? And then how the everyday working person, like you were saying, the everyday citizen is losing agency over their over mm -hmm. the path, the course of their community, um, and often the path of their own lives. Mm -hmm. And, you know... Part, that comes down back to my question of what does this campaign mean to us as Bronxites? Uh, to have a third generation Bronxite, like you said, a girl that we've seen on our streets and that's shopped in our stores that we saw when we were at the barbershop, mm -hmm. you know, to have you running, what does that mean to us? You know, I think it means... I, I really do think that it means an alternative path for our future. I think it means that it's an opportunity for us to have control over our own destiny again. We haven't elected a new member of Congress here in years, if not decades. And we have to kind of get out of this mindset that we own like that a congressional seat is a lifetime appointment. It's not and it shouldn't be because our, our world is changing so fast and the idea that we still have that we haven't like elected a new congress a new member of congress a new member of congress in this century you know yeah, like our most recent like quote unquote spring chicken leadership was elected 20 years ago we haven't had new leadership since and that is a huge problem because it's a crisis in a world that is changing so quickly and moreover if you care about the success if you're a person that cares about the success of Democrats. The other issue is that Republicans are constantly encouraging and electing young leadership. Uh, the Republican Party has very young leaders. Paul Ryan was one of the youngest elected yep. Congress members of his time. He's one of the youngest speakers of the House. And we keep, you know, meanwhile, the average age of a House Democrat has gone up 10 years and it's 65. Average. So we're in this position where we're calling 50-something-year-old Congress members super young and a fresh face when when the age to enter Congress constitutionally is 25. And that, that also speaks to the diversity of Congress and the diversity of, mm -hmm. um, of, of the congressional committee um, in general. You know, what does Congress look like right now? And it doesn't look like, you know, my hometown of the Bronx. It doesn't. It's overwhelmingly male. It's overwhelmingly white. It's overwhelmingly um, older, and it doesn't reflect... And high income. And high income, and it doesn't reflect the actual demographics in terms of range of age, you know? Mm -hmm. So let me ask you a question. because <laughs> That's not how this works. I know, but... Hey. <laughs> But I feel like oftentimes one of the things that I see is that within the progressive community, the, you know, as even in, in, in the community of democratic socialism or everything, everything from like liberal to all the way, you know, leftist. My question is that when you bring up these issues, there are still those divisions like this idea that you should never talk about gender or race, and that you should quote-unquote stick to economics or quote-unquote stick to policy. 
how do you, how do you respond when people bring that up, especially coming from the community that we come from? There's no way for me to leave my race at home. Mm-hmm. There's no way for me to leave my gender out of a job interview or out of a, a conversation. Um, I I can't stop being all of the different parts of who I am. You know, there's this big term called intersectionality that's used in um, in authorship on, on critical race theory and intersectionality says that you exist at the intersection of all the different parts of who you are mm-hmm. your political views, your race, your gender your sexual orientation um, you know, whether you're married or not whether you, you know what kind of job you have, your socioeconomic class, you're at the intersection of all of that and we can't not talk about race and gender when every other politician makes judgments based on it, right? So just because you're not talking about race doesn't mean you're not voting based on it. Just because you're not talking about gender doesn't mean that I don't continue to get paid for, you know, 63 cents for every dollar my white fiancé makes. Mm -hmm. Um, And if we continue to not talk about it and not bring it up, that's what perpetuates the systemic issues in in our country. Yeah, I know. There's like this idea that if we just don't talk about it, it's going to get better. And I, I have never heard of a problem that has been solved by ignoring it. Well, look at me too, right? Yeah. So we, 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 we persisted in our false reality that no one was being sexually abused by people in power, that no one was being sexually abused. Um, in the entertainment industry or by politicians, but it was a false reality. Mm-hmm. And by putting it into the limelight, women have been able to come forward with their experiences and protect other people. Um, you know, build like you know, people were drugging other people. People yeah. were literally harming other people. And if we don't have these people held accountable, they'll continue to do it. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, so we had this whole recent... Everything fine? Yes, yes, thank you. Thank you so much. We had this whole recent issue, for example, with Eric Schneiderman. And he was like this progressive lion, right? He was a champion for women's rights. Right, right. And, and so I sent out an email to my list. I got it. And I felt like it was something important that we had to talk about. In that moment. In that moment. And not wait about it. Exactly. And I didn't want to wait about it. I wanted to have a response. And Because you know what? He resigned the next day. Yeah. He he knew that his time was up. And the thing is, is to me, the amount of emails that I... I got a lot of positive emails. I got a lot of like thank yous and response. Thank you for talking about this. Thank you for saying this. But I also got a lot of emails that was like, stick to the issues. As if this is not an issue. Yes. Se- <laughs> sexual was, violence is an issue because it's happening to people. And the thing is cr- crazy because I literally said in that email, this is not about identity politics. This is about like the actual consequences of not having, um, you know, representative leadership. And the way I feel is like if you're working class, if you're a working class person and you are frustrated that the needs of working class Americans aren't being represented, how do you think women feel? How do you think people of color feel? Yep. Like, what? <laughs> no, and you know, if, if I'm gonna live as a subclass citizen because of my race and because of my gender, you know, then 
like, who am I not to talk about it? Mm-hmm. My, mm-hmm. you know, the reason why Kanye gets to say that slavery oh was a yeah. choice is because 400 years of slaves before him suffered. And we have the opportunity now to be visible and have our voices heard Mm -hmm. that our ancestors couldn't even imagine having. Mm -hmm. They just wanted to live to the next day. And here we are with all of the power in our hands, in our cell phones, Mm -hmm. to like lift up our voice and talk about the struggles that we're going through and that our community is going through. And it's like, it's not even that we shouldn't, it's that we we shouldn't dare not to. Mm -hmm. Mm Absolutely. I completely agree with you. And I think it's what's important, too, is that we have a lot of work to do. You know, I I talk a lot about what's going on nationally, but I think that the most important work that we have to do is the work in our own backyard. And whatever your backyard is, whether you're in a DSA meeting or a working group, whether you just go to your workplace or your office or your neighborhood, the most impactful work we can do is the work in our own backyard. Absolutely. And it's time to, like, you know, if you want to impact things on a, nas- on a national level, it's almost cliche to say all politics is local. But seriously, if you, if you want to impact politics on a national level, you need to knock on every door in your building and you need to say, this girl is running for Congress. Maybe not girl, this woman. <laughs> I do it myself, man. It's internalized. Yeah. Um, But hey, like, and we need to support her or whatever the issue is. Do you know about Medicare for all? Do you know about these kinds of issues? That's, you know, we don't, it, it, the world doesn't change in the pages of the New York Times. The New York Times reports on the changes in the world. And sometimes they don't even do that. And so we gotta, we gotta do it like the world doesn't change in the pages of Politico. The world changes in our buildings. And like, don't, like, so me and my friends always sit on the couch playing video games and complaining about things that are going on in my life. But, like, don't come up and complain to me if you're not voting. Don't yeah. come up and complain to me if you haven't volunteered on a single political campaign. Don't come up and complain to me if you're not organizing in your workplace. Like, I, yeah. I, I just, I can't, if you haven't exhausted your own, um, like, there's so many resources at our disposal. My fiance is creating a petition right now to get a 401k at his job. Wow. And that's like, that'll impact every employee that he current, coworker that he currently has, and anyone who's hired in the future. Yeah. And like, it's so easy. It's so, like, it's not with all of the technology in our hands, it's easier than ever to organize. And you just don't have an excuse anymore to not be involved in politics, Mm -hmm. to say you don't care about politics. Because everything that happens at the national stage, local political stage, affects you. Yep. And they're going to make changes to your life, whether you speak up for yourself or not. Yep. Totally, totally. 100%. And I guess we're coming to the end. And, you know, I'm very thankful for you to talk to, talking to our listeners and showing your heart for our community. Yeah. Um, which I haven't felt from some of the other current elected officials. And, you know... Talking about that listener that says, I don't care about politics. Mm -hmm. I don't care about um, who gets elected. They're all the same. Mm -hmm. Nothing's going to change in my life. I have limited time and resources. Why should I volunteer volunteer for your campaign? Well, first of all, I completely understand 
that kind of set up. I completely understand those limitations, whether they are resource or time-based. Um, but what I think is really important is that everybody can give some, even if you have 30 minutes, you know, not everyone has the privilege of being able to go outside, whether you are a parent of young children, whether you have a physical disability, whatever that may be. But everybody, like, for example, we've worked really, really hard to create organizing opportunities for everyone, even if you just have five minutes. So for example, we have postcard campaigns. If you you know, if you have social anxiety or whatever that may be, or if you just don't have a lot of time, you can ask us for 50 postcards. You can ask us for 10 postcards, and we'll give you 10 addresses of voters in the district, and we'll give you 10 postcards. And you could just write a quick note, hey, I would love if you supported this candidate. Um, you can pick up 30 minutes and do 30 minutes of phone banking. We have text banking. Um, and the thing is, is if we want our lives to get better, this is the work that we have to do. If we don't do it, life is just going to get harder and harder and harder. If we don't do it, then someone who doesn't represent your views, someone who doesn't know what you're going through, they will do the work. Mm -hmm. Or or another elected official will pay somebody to go out and knock on those doors in your place. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, the people who get to decide what your neighborhood looks like, whether what your rent is, what your what your um, childcare costs are, how much you have to pay for health insurance, mm -hmm. every aspect of your life is regulated in our society by politics, and we can't allow those decisions to not be made by our community any longer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. And if we don't do the work, someone else will, and that someone else is not working in our interest. So we got to be out there, even if it's two minutes, even if it's a day. We gotta be out there. And where can they go to totally. get connected to your campaign? Twitter, Instagram. Yeah, yeah. It's all all of our social handles are at Ocasio twenty eighteen. So that's O C A S I O two Zero One Eight. Um, and website Ocasio twenty eighteen dot com, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Ocasio twenty eighteen. And I know for a fact that she answers her emails mm -hmm. and she answers her tweets. And if you have any other questions that we didn't cover in this interview, feel free to reach out to her and her campaign. They will get back to you. And, you know, we've always said the Radio Free South Bronx doesn't endorse candidates. But if I had a hat to throw in this race, which I don't because I live in the South, I'm just beyond her district line. But just because I'm not in her district doesn't mean that I'm not going to step up and work for this campaign. Because you know what? If no one's running in my district, but someone's running in the district next door, I know I have to go and help out in the campaign. Because even if there's an arbitrarily drawn um, gerrymandered district line in the Bronx, everything in the Bronx is tied. Everyone in the Bronx is tied. And yeah. our liberations are tied. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll definitely be there to help out on your campaign. Yeah, totally. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming. Thank you.